Support for The Bittersweet Life comes from Italy Beyond the Obvious. Planning a dream trip to Italy? Don't go without exploring italybeyondtheobvious.com. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. It's 2020, and a whole new year stretches out before us. What kind of people are we going to be this year? I hope we are people who support each other, who tip the people in our lives, who help us live better. Just yesterday, I tipped my server when I met a friend for dinner. The day before, I tipped my barista. This show, The Bittersweet Life, is a lot of work. 20 hours a week or more. And I remember the day when I made more money working in a bar, waiting on a couple for 40 minutes. Because we forget with art, don't we? We forget that it's work, that it's hard work. So this year, don't forget to tip your podcaster. I'm going to try to remember to do that too. We're on Patreon, search for The Bittersweet Life Podcast, or donate through PayPal at thebittersweetlife.net. There are links in the show notes, so it's super easy. Don't forget to tip your podcaster. Now on with the show. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell, and today I am joined by two guests, two family members, one who you've met before, my sister, Sarah Johnson. Hello again. If you haven't heard her before, you obviously haven't listened to the episode, Sisters. Go back and check it out. And we're also joined by my dad, Dale Sewell. Hey, you've heard about me on Bittersweet Life several times. Now you get to hear me, myself. (laughs) So we're all uh, having a kind of impromptu reunion because Sarah came to town for the winter to escape the snow. But since we're all here together, we thought we would talk with Dad because for both Sarah and I, Dad was really the person who got us to travel overseas for the first time in a big way. So we thought we'd talk about that. Sarah, uh, what's the first big trip you took with Dad? Uh, The first big trip I took was to Southeast Asia in 2007, I believe. Where did you go? That year we went to Vietnam, Cambodia. I think that was it that time. Yeah, I think that was it the first time. The first time she went. Yeah. And had you ever, I know you went to Ireland for your honeymoon, but had you been anywhere else overseas prior to that? I don't think so. I don't remember. (laughs) Memories here. Okay, great. This is going to be a good interview. (laughs) Okay, so dad, one of the main questions I had, uh, the first place I went with you overseas was Japan in 1999. And you called me up on the phone. I was in college at the time. And you said, hey, Kate, want to go to Japan? And I said, I don't know why. (laughs) I believe was my answer. Do you remember inviting me to go to Japan? Um, We're going to have memory issues. (laughs) 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 Well, I remember being in Japan with you, yeah. So one of the questions I had that maybe you don't have an answer to is um, when you invited me to go to Japan, it might come as a surprise to our listeners, and even more so when you started inviting me to go with you on a regular basis to Vietnam, which you and I went to Vietnam at least seven times. But I think what might come as a surprise, now that many people think of me as a big traveler, is that when you started inviting me to go, I wasn't really a person who wanted to go anywhere. I was a person who was pretty happy being at home with my friends. And I've always wondered if you sort of noticed the smallness, like the provincialness of the kind of life that I was living and you were purposefully trying to expand it. Well, I knew 
growing up with you that you were kind of a homebody. You didn't like to be gone overnight. And yeah, you did like your friends a lot. Uh, but probably I invited, I may have invited you partly for that reason, but probably it was mostly because I enjoy your company and I <laughs> figured it'd be fun to have you with me in Japan. Yeah, well, that's nice. So it wasn't part of a big master plan to, to break me out of my cycle of being Rara USA, I'll just stay home for the rest of my life. Not that I recall. <laughs> I feel like I need to ask for the absent sister, the one who has never gone on any of these trips and never been invited on any of these trips. Sorry, Dana. Like I always wondered too, if it was intentional, why was Dana not a part of that uh, exploration? Well, I actually promised Dana at one point when I had only gone to Thailand that I would take her with me sometime. But by the time I got around to traveling regularly, she, I think, was already married and, you know, it was harder for her to travel for a variety of reasons. So I still feel guilty that she's never gone with me anywhere and I feel like I owe her. Yeah, Dad, aren't you also to a point where you really don't want to travel that big anymore, right? <laughs> yeah, I, th I think she's lost her opportunity because she's still pretty tied down with her children and her work and... I'm not an enthusiast for flying overseas anymore. I have a couple different ways I could go here, but since we went to Vietnam seven times, and Sarah, how many times did you go to Vietnam with Dad? I think I've been there three. Three times, seven times. How many times have you been to Vietnam, Dad? I have no idea. <laughs> what would you guess? I think I counted in my old passport once, and it was like 25, and then I got a new passport, and so maybe over 30, 33, maybe something like that. Why Vietnam? Why is that the place that you kept going back to and back to and back to and back to? Well, actually, <clears throat> to go back a little, as a young guy, I never went anywhere. I never traveled out of the country until... 1987, so I'd have been 43 already before I was out of the country at all. And what I really wanted was to go to Vietnam, but at that time, Vietnam was closed to Americans. You couldn't go there. Most Americans couldn't go there. So I went to Thailand instead. But I, I grew up in the Vietnam War era, and I was in seminary training to be a minister, so seminarians didn't go to, weren't drafted. But I formed a very strong emotional bond with what was happening in Vietnam, first with American soldiers there, but then that gradually expanded to the suffering of everybody. And that was somehow in my soul. I mean, it was really there. It was there for from 1968 until I finally went to Vietnam in 1992. So that was a long time. that, that I, I began to think, what is this? I'm a little strange or weird or... This is some little crazy part of me. But then I decided, no, maybe not. Maybe it's my soul work. You know, maybe it's what my soul wants to do. So, But it was because of that emotional connection I made during the war that never went away. Do you think that, that part of that connection came from the fact that you were not there and your brother was there and some of your friends were there? And not so much. I, in fact, I'm, I'm glad looking back that I never went during the war because I think things happened to you in war that would have made my attitude toward Vietnam much different than it is. Uh, it would have been, I don't know, it just would have been strangely different. And I did have friends who were there. I, and none of my close friends uh, were killed there. But a guy I played football with in college was killed there, and a guy I was in my fraternity died many years later, but it was a, a, as a result, his life was shortened by the trauma 
of having been a, a grunt in Vietnam. So the, after all that time, from the war all the way until you got there in 1992, did it live up to what you were expecting after kind of thinking about it for such a long period of time? Or I don't even know if live up to is the right thing, but was it anything like what you were expecting? It actually exceeded by miles what I was expecting. The first time I went to Vietnam, I actually went to Hanoi, which may not have been my choice, but I was meeting some people there from my church. And when the airplane, when the airplane actually touched down at the airport in Hanoi, I felt this electricity go from head to foot through my body. It was like, this is where you needed to come to. And that stayed with me for till maybe 2014 or 15. It was, I needed to go back. I needed to make connections. I needed to help there. And I wanted my daughters to experience it with me. So that's part of the reason you got invited. And when I was going with you on a regular basis, we were going twice a year, February and in August. Sarah, after having me and dad going there, or dad and me, thanks mom, going there so many times together, what was it like for you to finally go? Yeah, I think I had been asked a number of times and been kind of resistant. I didn't also didn't have too much desire to leave the country for a good bit of time. I was just happily enjoying life, making money, my career, whatever. Not unlike you, I always thought Dad wanted me to go because he was worried I was getting too materialistic. <laughs> Is that true, Dad? No, I, n no, it isn't. <laughs> I guess we just had our own. <laughs> I guess when we figured out what we were taking out of these countries, we just assumed that was why Dad wanted us to go. I think I finally agreed to go because I had sponsored a couple houses and a school. And I think I was first going because they asked me to come because the school was finished. It was interesting to go with the idea of going to see something that you had helped pay for. That, that was what got me yeah. to go. She was making money in the U.S. and spending some of it in Vietnam yeah. for good causes. So, And they did. They really wanted the donor to come and, and be at the school dedication and things like that. So that's what actually got you to say yes, finally. Yeah, that and just you guys wore me out. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't regret it. No, I don't regret it. I was glad I went. It's interesting because... One of the reactions, I, I don't get it as much, so maybe we're all in the world becoming more progressive travelers, but I remember when we first started going, Dad, you and I probably first started going in 2000, something around there, for me anyway. The initial reaction that I was getting from people, and I would have been in my mid-20s at that point, was, of all the places in the world, why would you want to go to Vietnam? And that was a very common, I feel like that was a very common refrain, even in super liberal Seattle was, why would you go to a country that we were in a war with? Why not go to Europe or Japan or something, you know, acceptable? Did you get that kind of reaction too? No, <laughs> actually, I think probably they, if people felt that way, they wouldn't have told me. But one of the things they're forgetting is there were, there were two Vietnams during the war, and one of them we were allies with. Mm -hmm. And so going there should have made sense. But then, in some ways, the more interesting part was going to the north where and meeting a lot of people who were enemies during the war and, you know, experiencing them as human beings and hearing what they did in the war and things like that. So, yeah. But I think that the people who thought that were really, really wrong for a lot of reasons. It was a wonderful country to visit at that in that decade from 2000 to 2010. 
reconciliation was happening. They were so thrilled to see Americans in the North as well as in the South. And mm -hmm. the reception for the most part was really friendly. The only time I ever experienced any hostility was at uh, St. Joseph Cathedral in Hanoi, which you've been to, Katie. Have you been there, Sarah? I don't, I don't remember. And we were riding in a van. I don't know what it said on it, if anything, but a bunch of like 13-year-old boys threw stones at us, <laughs> <laughs> threw stones at the van. And they, I don't know, they knew we were Americans or just knew we were tourists or just were being 13-year-olds, I don't know. But other than that, the welcome was always extremely... Um, more than pleasant, it was uh, people were excited to see Americans and speak English and things like that. Yes, I remember them being very thrilled when we first started going about Bill Clinton. Oh, you'd be like, oh, where are you from? Oh, we're from the United States. Oh, Clinton, Bill Clinton, <laughs> because he had lifted the trade embargo, I believe. Yeah, and started normalizing relationships. And, and that's actually maybe just preceding him or because of him, Americans were actually allowed to go to Vietnam again in 1990-92. All of us have had innumerable experiences in Vietnam, but it, let's each take the time to share one thing that we remember having happened to us there. We could also pick categories. I could be like, the most ridiculous thing I ever did in Vietnam, and Sarah could be the most unusual person I ever met. <laughs> I, I can tell you the stupidest thing I ever did in Vietnam. All right is my Vietnamese friend, Ben Nguyen, and I, who traveled together a lot to Vietnam, went to Vietnam one day, stayed there a day, and came home. So it was a three-day trip, you know, oh. one day travel, one day there, one day home. And the reason was a particular church in Vietnam that we were working with wanted to look at a buying some land, and we might have had something to do with helping them buy it. So we show up to counsel with them about which land to buy and we tromp around and after a while the Vietnamese started telling me to stay in the van stay in the van and I said why they said because when they see a white guy an American they think they got rich supporters and the price goes up <laughs> so we were making it worse for them instead of better so yeah. but like we left on a Tuesday and we're home on a Thursday and the church I worked for I don't think even knew we were gone oh my so. gosh why wouldn't you tack on a few extra days? That sounds exhausting. Uh, it's like a 24 hours worth of travel to get to Vietnam. Yeah, I don't know. It was just, we had other things we had to do back here, so we decided to fit it in. But it was a worthless trip because it made things worse rather than better. Sir? Um, one of my most memorable experiences was somewhere outside of Hue, and we went to some really rural, rural village because I was always begging everybody to get out of the city for a while and get out into the country because I'm more of a country girl at heart, but also I feel like the poorest of the poor are out in the country, and I was interested in hanging out with them. And that was really memorable. And what was most interesting to, to me about it was that the, our, the guides, the nuns that we were going with, turned to me at one point and said, I don't even understand what they're saying. So here, you know, the entire country speaks Vietnamese, but this little village had their own dialect, which I just found interesting. I don't know why I thought that was so surprising, but it was. I want to suggest the strangest thing you, you ever did. Okay. You're the one who took Mr. Potato Head to a rural village in Vietnam, right? And gave it to a school or some children or something like that. I gave it to a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> and we, 
And of course, they didn't, had never heard of Mr. Potato Head. And we always thought afterward, what have we done to that <laughs> school? I should mention that a friend had given me Mr. Potato Head. It was in the time period when everybody wanted to photograph a gnome in front of places. And this friend gave me this Mr. Potato Head and said, why don't you just take pictures of Mr. Potato Head throughout the country? And I said, the likelihood of me keeping this thing with me the entire time is very low because it was large, you know? A potato head is a big object. And I brought it with me in my backpack and we went out to this rural village, but so rural that we actually took motorbikes across a handmade bamboo bridge. And then, yes, left this potato head out in the middle of the jungle. So it, it will outlast the whole planet, probably, <laughs> like that potato head. Archaeologists will find it and wonder, you know, how, what is this thing doing here? Uh, I was going to say that one of the things that I think was the most ridiculous, but also one of the funniest things I ever did, and I was alone at the time, was also in Hui. Most of the best, weirdest memories I have are always in Hui. And I was out walking and all of a sudden there was this giant downpour of rain. Sometimes in Vietnam when it rains that hard, it, all of a sudden it's just flooding. Like the streets are just running with water and it doesn't usually last very long. But there were these women sitting on the side of the road that were selling aquarium decorations and goldfish that were sitting in little tiny plastic bowls. And with the downpour of the rain, the bowls were overflowing and the goldfish were just drifting off down the street. And they didn't seem to mind at all. They were just watching them go. They weren't doing anything to try to, to rectify this situation. And I just started running around, you know, laughing in, in a way, running around, swooping up these goldfish and throwing them back into little tiny bowls. Like, and the, the old women that were, were just laughing hysterically as I tried to rescue all these goldfish as they drifted away. Yes. I often try to do things that make people laugh at me sometimes in certain countries. The thing that amazed me the most, uh, the, a small, well, I don't know if it's a small thing or not. One of the most amazing uh, things that happened to me in Vietnam was I met a man who had actually rescued a pilot from my hometown who was shot down in the Vietnam War. And that happened in like 1965, so it was 40 years before I met this guy. And then, of course, we became friends, and he was one of the ones that worked with Sarah on the school that she was helping with and things like that. And We did several things together in Vietnam, but I thought, is there some the universe have a plan or something that that I go to Vietnam all these times and I meet this guy who rescued slash captured a, a shot down pilot from my hometown, my little 1500 member hometown in Western Pennsylvania. I thought that was really amazing. How did you discover that he had done that? Our group met his daughter and her husband when they were on their honeymoon in Hue our conversations led to her mentioning that her dad was a member of the Politburo. And eventually, after two or three years, we'd gone out to dinner with him and his wife in Hanoi, and then they invited us to their house. And I saw a picture of him on the wall from a long time ago and asked him what he was doing in the war. And he told me he, was, he could speak English, so we were stationed out in the rural areas in North Vietnam just in case a pilot was shot down. The villagers, if a pilot was shot down, were furious because they were bombing their area. And often they would attack the pilots and harm them or kill them. So he was stationed out there just in case, and it actually happened. I have a photo of him standing right behind the American pilot. 
And then he said the one regret he had was that he had saved his pilot and then lost track of him and wished that now that it was 35 years later, he could be in touch with the guy. And I asked him the name of the pilot. And I, I tell you the truth, I knew the name he was going to say before he said it. Mm-hmm. And it was the name of the pilot from my hometown. Sarah, can you recall a very emotional moment uh, when you were in Vietnam? I don't have like one memory that jumps out, but I do one of the connections for me with Asia, Vietnam, and surrounding countries is just the stark contrast of what it's like to be a woman there compared to my life here. And I think that both is inspiring to me. It also weighs on my mind a lot, just how lucky I got and how different my life looks because I was born in a different country. And that's really the only thing that's different between my life and their life is where we were born and and just the path that takes you down. So that is definitely something that has kind of emotionally stuck with me for 12 years now. How does that actually hang out with you besides you just pondering it? Does it change anything about your your life or your outlook or what you're doing? Uh, I'd like to think that on a daily basis, I it makes me a little more grateful than I probably was before, but uh, also led me to start a nonprofit for young girls uh, to try to teach them the responsibility that comes with a life lived in the United States and how different their life would be if they were born somewhere else. Try to kind of weave it into most facets of my life, actually. What's the name of your nonprofit? Million Girl Army. And why is it called that? The hope would be that at some point there's an army of one million girls and women who are working together to lift up other girls and women around the world that have less than they do. So one of the things that I loved about traveling with you to Vietnam, and I've heard Vietnam has changed quite a bit, and I have not been there now since, I don't know, almost a decade probably. But when we were there, there were a lot of kids selling things on the street. Some people begging, a lot of people trying to sell you things that you didn't want. And at the time, it was a a lot of tourists didn't like Vietnam for that reason, because there was no way that to leave your hotel without being trailed on your way to anywhere with people saying, here's postcards, here's this, here's that. And, and there was a lot of fear about pickpocketing and stuff back then. I remember all these things about that you would hear about Vietnam. Oh, if you go there, you're just going to be harassed the whole time. And one of the things that I appreciated about you, Dad, was not only did you make friends with all of these postcard-selling kids so that, yes, they were trying to sell you postcards, but they were also just hanging out with you and telling you about their lives. You also used to joke with them in a way that was, I think some people would call aggressive. (laughs) In the sense that, uh, I'll try to explain it, in the sense that oftentimes these people would do that really pleading affect like oh i'm you know i'm so ill oh baby's sick you know things like this that were kind of minimizing or a character that they were playing and you would start to joke with them and and tell them various things like i remember one thing i did based on your example where I, the kid was like was saying baby's sick baby's sick and i said what baby what baby's sick and she and she's where's the baby and she said i'm the baby and i said you're like 10 you're not the baby you would do those kinds of things to break them out so that you could actually start a real conversation. Uh, and another thing I remember you doing that I thought was so funny was there was a there was a guy that was just sitting begging on the street and he was ho- holding out his hand, but he had a bill in his hand to demonstrate that you should be giving him money and you just snatched the bill right, <laughs> right out of his hand. And he, he said, in English, of course, hey! 
And you said, what, you weren't offering me money? And he said, no, you're supposed to give me money. And you said, oh, okay. And you gave him his money back and gave him money also. So I, I always thought it was funny that you would do things like that. Do you remember doing those things for one? Oh, yes, I do. It was, uh, it actually was kind of a natural reaction to get, to break through beyond the, just the transaction of, you know, you give me money and then, you know, you go on your way and to create more of a interaction that might lead to uh, something fun or something in a way more respectful, you know, because we became human beings together through humor. Usually I gave them the money that they wanted to because I figured, I, I actually took money to Vietnam just to give to those people because I knew their, um, you know, most of them weren't conning us. They, they really did live in poverty and needed the money. And, and I figured there's not a better way to get money directly to the poor than that. And now I think if you went to Vietnam, those people wouldn't be there. And it's because of what you said. It's the tourists complained so much and it was such an uncomfortable experience that the tourist police actually managed them one way or another, you know, got discouraged them, got rid of them, disappeared them, put them in a re-education camp 40 miles from the city or something like that. So that um, the last times we were going there, were, there were hardly any of them. We had to really look to find our old friends that we had known for 10 years or so that used to be postcard sellers or street sellers so yeah last time we were there they weren't allowed to have cyclos anymore they got rid of them in part because of this clean sweeping of the tourist districts yeah and it was kind of well and part of it was there's so many more cars on the road that cyclos were a little more there was a little more risk to having them but one of the tragedies of that is after the war ended in 1975 anybody connected with the southern government couldn't get a job and they were all in poverty and one of the things they could do is rent or buy a cyclo and make a living that way so a lot of the guys driving those were old south vietnamese uh, war veterans and you know and then when uh, they couldn't drive their cyclo anymore i don't i don't know what they did but mm-hmm. well maybe to end and sarah you won't have a story with with this but to end dad because we've talked a lot about the people who actually lived there but one time when you and I were there Hollywood was there and they were filming The Quiet American outside of the hotel you and I were staying at which was starring Michael Caine and Brandon Fraser I ran into Brandon Fraser multiple times in the elevator but never once said a word to him just because <laughs> I figured if you can't go to Vietnam and not be recognized you know where can you go but you had an experience with Michael Caine right Dad? <laughs> yes I did I stood next to Michael Caine in the men's restroom at the urinals, and uh, he didn't say hi to me, so I didn't say hi to him. But I was tempted to say, uh, I really liked you in Zulu, which was a movie he made like 25 years before, <laughs> so, like as if I didn't know he'd done anything since then. <laughs> and the other strange thing was one of our group kept getting the day's schedule for filming under the door of her hotel room because <laughs> the cast was all staying there. Yeah, and it was very strange to watch that movie once we had actually seen it because there's a part in that movie where they blow up a car and that car had been parked outside of our hotel the whole time and I, 
the whole time I'd been like, oh, I love that car. That car is so cute. And then they blew it up in the film. Yeah, we weren't there when they blew it up, but we came back and it was blown up, right? Yeah. We'd gone off somewhere. Yeah. I'd just like to say that, Sarah, uh, you went with me to Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand. And you took a group from your town in Montana one time, what, four or five people? Yes. And I was always, I would say that Katie and I had a lot of fun in Vietnam, but you had a lot of um, compassion, uh, maybe even tears for some of what you saw. And I was glad that, that you came, and I was glad that you brought your friends to it as well. Yeah, I, I think uh, having been resistant to going and then having gone, I think it's important that people go and see. And I know, especially in rural Montana, people don't really leave their area, their state even, a lot of the time. Or if they do, it's to another state somewhere inside the country. Or maybe they venture to Costa Rica or, or something. That might be like the farthest away. I think everybody should go and see, witness things firsthand. I think travel is really important. And yeah, I had an opportunity to take some girls from my town just to see what life is like outside of where they lived. And both of you, I think, sponsored girls with scholarships so they could stay in school and go to college and things like that. Yeah, I think they've all graduated now. In terms of travel to Vietnam, what I'm hearing from all my Vietnamese American friends who moved from first generation moved from Vietnam to the refugee camps to the US and have been here since 1980 or 1990. They're all saying they don't like Vietnam anymore because uh, they say it's the Chinese influence that they think the Chinese are sort of putting all the money into their country sending all the food to Vietnam stuff and they think everything is poisoned now the water is now more polluted the air is more polluted the food you can't trust and I know that prices have gone up in Vietnam a great deal since we were there. I think we were there in a 10-year period it was just perfect for a variety of reasons even just to be a tourist you know and we were always a combination of very serious work and having fun or something like that so I don't know what Vietnam is like now, and I'm not sure you know, what they're saying is exactly accurate, but to the person that I know, they're saying Vietnam is a much worse place now because of all the pollution and, and all the bad food and things like that. Mm-hmm. But that could be nostalgia, like saying things like, well, my hometown was way better back when I was a kid. It could be a little bit of that. I mean, yeah, when we first started going there, one of the things I loved about Vietnam was that there was nothing recognizable to it that had anything to do with the U.S. You never saw anything that was like an American company. You never saw, I think the only American company that was there at the time was Kentucky Fried Chicken. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And now a a friend of mine who's traveling there today sent me a picture of a Starbucks and of a McDonald's. And so lifting that trade embargo does have a consequence. But it also means that the country itself is hopefully more prosperous. Yes, I think it is more prosperous. And actually, I think some of the poor have a better chance of making a decent living. But I would also say it may be nostalgia, what they say, but they didn't say it before about 2012. And now they're saying it regularly. And they've been back since I have. So 
I don't know. I don't know what's true. I just know that's what they say. All right. So will you go again, Dad? Uh, there's an outside chance. I'm still uh, uh, assisting a school, an online school that teaches in Vietnam. They keep wanting me to go with them, the, the ones in the U.S., whenever they go, especially for graduation. So I might, but my guess would be no. And what I regret about it is that there's friends we have there, mutual friends, that unless there's a way for them to get here, uh, we won't see them anymore. That's what I really regret. Otherwise, all good memories. Sarah? Um, I, I mean, uh, maybe I would go back. There, I've always been torn when it comes to travel about going back to favorite places and going somewhere new, and I think there's a lot of world left to see. But that said, that area of the world is special. It is a special place, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we should leave it there. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. Thank you, Sarah. You're welcome. And Dad. Thank you, Katie. Dale Sewell. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for going with me to Vietnam. Thank you for inviting us. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Talk to you next week. Bye. Thanks to those of you who regularly support us through Patreon or PayPal. You know who you are. We know who you are. And you've probably gotten a thank you note from us in the mail. Don't forget to tip your podcaster. There are easy links to donate in the show notes. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye.